You're tuned in to 90.7 FM KALX Berkeley. My name is Tesla Munson, and this is The Graduates, the interview talk show where I speak with UC Berkeley graduate students about their work here on campus and around the world. Today, I have the fortune, nay, the pleasure of being joined here by molecular biologist Heather Bruce, Department of Molecular and Cell Biology, correct? Yep. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's my, it's my pleasure. <laughs> so... I guess we should start by introducing, I've only had one other MCB, as we call it, MCB student, mm -hmm. which was Phil Cleves, as, oh, wow. as you, uh, we were talking about earlier. But Phil's yeah. great. Yeah. <laughs> so what, could you just refresh us, what is molecular and cell biology? And which one of those do you do? Or are they the same? Um, I, I think, uh, I would say that um, molecular and cell biology are kind of a level of looking at things. So it's, you know, it's not at the level of the organism, you know, so below the organism and behavior, you would have like kind of the cell level and like the tissue level. Um, and then below that, you would have inside the cell, you have like protein interactions and like protein folding and stuff. So that would be biochemistry. So molecular biology is kind of in between those two. And so the kinds of like questions that molecular biologists ask are, you know, how does development happen? How does embryogenesis happen? So, you know, for an embryo, you're thinking about how do cells move in a sheet in order to like form a, a limb or something like that. So I'm in development. So. You're in development. Very nice. And uh, are these invertebrates or? Yeah, I'm in invertebrates. In my undergrad, I did snails. And then uh, for graduate school, I'm doing crustaceans. Okay, so all invertebrates. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your undergrad. You did research uh, mm -hmm. then, and, and where was your undergrad? Uh, University of Arizona in Tucson. Very nice. Are yeah. you from tu uh, Arizona? Or? No, I'm. <laughs> so I'm from the Bay Area. I grew up in Sunnyvale and Mountain View, and then uh, when I was ten, my parents moved to Cornville, Arizona. Wow, great! It's name. a real place. There's no corn there. <laughs> <laughs> Even better. Yeah, and then I did like high school and um, community college there. And then I transferred to University of Arizona. And then I, I came back to California as soon as I could. <laughs> yeah, no, I can understand now why. You, I never want to leave and you can't tear me away. <laughs> awesome. Can I ask, uh, what what was the transition like from community college to mm -hmm. U, U Arizona? It was, I, I was definitely really scared. I was worried that, you know, I wasn't going to be smart enough and, you know, I definitely had the whole imposter syndrome thing going on that, like, you know, I wasn't, you know, everyone else was going to be really well prepared because, you know, they'd had all this, like, prep courses and they knew all this stuff about how to do college. And, but when I got there, I mean, it was actually a lot like community college. It was just bigger classes. And I think what I did to kind of help myself was I just sat in the front and then that made it feel like, you know, I wasn't, I was kind of in a, a small class because I was like right next to the teacher. And then I felt like I could just, you know, I was just having a little conversation with the teacher. And then that made it feel less huge and intimidating. Awesome. And obviously you were not an imposter because here you are at one of the best schools in the country. So <laughs> I hope not. No, definitely not. I'm still fooling them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. That imposter syndrome never goes away. It's hard. Yeah. It's really well, topic for another day. But yes. so did you do this molecular or developmental work in undergrad as well? Mm -hmm. yeah. So I'll give you the backstory. So when I was in community college, I was working in the biology lab, like as a TA and stuff. And for my birthday, they gave me 
this book called Endless Forms Most Beautiful from Sean Carroll. That's a you know, great book. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, this is this is amazing. I we know how to like make animals and we can think about, you know, how to put them together, like their little like circuits and stuff. So I thought that was really amazing. So I knew I wanted to go into some kind of a, you know, evolutionary developmental biology. So when I transferred to U of A, they have there were two programs. There was ecology and evolution, and then there was molecular biology. And since ecology and evolution had evolution in it, I transferred into that one because that seemed, you know, like where Evo Devo would happen. But when I first transferred there, it was like field work and I was counting like the seeds of little desert plant plants and it was like it was cool but it was not evo devo so then you know i think six months in i transferred into mcb and then i started in uh, dr lisa Nagy's lab and she works um, in evo devo and she works on snails so my project was to characterize the role of the hox gene post 2 in the development of the mollusk shell and so that's interesting because the mollusk shell is, they call it a morphological novelty, and that sounds kind of jargony. So what is that? So there are things in evolution where you can tell kind of what the ancestral form was. Like if you think about our hand, you know, going back, it was like, you know, a reptile hand or amphibian hand or a fish fin and stuff. But there are other things where, you know, the ancestral form isn't obvious. So if you think about mollusks like snails and clams, their ancestor looked more like kind of a leech and it doesn't have a shell. So it's like, well, where did that shell come from? We're used to thinking about evolution being kind of tinkering with an existing object. But if that trait doesn't exist, what do you tinker with to, to bring it into existence? So, so that's why I find novelties really interesting. And so... Where did the shell come from? Did you, did you I know. figure it out? <laughs> I know, I know, I built it up. No, I didn't. Okay. Uh, yeah, I, I actually, I was doing a few different experiments and none of them worked. <laughs> That's very common, I hear. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and I actually, I found out later, she told me that one of the reagents that I was using had gone bad. Oh, great. <laughs> I was like, nothing was working. And I was like, no. Oh, man. <laughs> So how do you go about characterizing the effects of a gene? What does that mean? So for the snail, uh, the snail gene, first we wanted to see, well, is this gene expressed in the tissue that gives rise to the shell? You know, so you wanna, you wanna correlate, you know, the gene's expression with like the tissue you think it's involved in. And so to do that, you do an experiment called an in situ. That shows you, makes a little color wherever the um, gene is being expressed so you can kind of see it. And then the next thing you would want to do is figure out, you know, well, does it have a function there? So it could be expressed in that tissue, but it might have nothing to do with the shell. And so to do functional tests, you can either take away the gene, you can knock it out. And so you could see, well, if it doesn't have this gene, maybe the shell doesn't form. And so then you could say, aha, this gene is necessary for forming a shell. Another thing you can do is to take that gene and put it in a place where it's not normally found. So like in the head or something like that. And then you can see, well, if I put this gene in the head, does it make a shell on the head? And then you can say if it does that, okay, well, this, this gene is sufficient to make shell. If you have this gene, that's all you need in order to get that 
that shell program going. So so it sounds like you're kind of talking about two different time slices, right? Because if you're doing it in situ, then you would want to like look at a very specific time to see if the gene is expressed. But then if you're doing can we make a shell that mm-hmm. you're like letting the animal keep growing and seeing what happens or mm-hmm. am I getting that right? Uh, no, I, that's pretty good. So I mean, within C2s, you can do a whole group of embryos. And so you can have a bunch of different time points. So you can have, you know, embryos that represent like, you know, early time points all the way to hatching or whatever. And that will kind of, that will let you follow the expression of that gene from like the very early you know, first few cells all the way to like the finished tissue. But yeah, with, you know, if you want to see the, they call it like the phenotype, kind of the result of what the physical animal looks like, then yeah, you would do like the very after it hashes and and see if you have a shell. (laughs) Very nice. So if you're just tuning in, you're listening to the graduates here on KLX Berkeley. My name's Tesla Munson. Today I'm speaking with molecular biologist Heather Bruce and, uh, yeah, developmental biologist, I should say. So we heard about the snails. That was all in your undergrad work. What are you doing now? Are you still in development? Uh, yeah. So now um, I'm still in development and I'm still in invertebrates. So right now I'm working in a crustacean and it kind of looks like a little shrimp. It's called Parhaeli hawaiiensis. Does um, it have Hawaii for a good reason? It does. It comes from Hawaii. Oh, awesome. Yeah. They're actually, so that genus, uh, I believe, is found, you know, all over kind of tropical type areas and that group of crustaceans is i think found everywhere like on every continent they're both marine and freshwater and there are also some in the antarctic wow yeah so my pi has gone to the antarctic i think to very cool yeah (laughs) or we've gotten some from from there yeah so so yeah so it looks kind of like a little shrimpy guy and right now i am kind of the title of my project is to characterize the genetic basis of appendage diversity in the crustacean Parhaeli. Okay, so the genes that make different kinds of arms and legs, mm-hmm. basically. Do yeah. we call them arms and legs in shrimp? Can we do that, or should we just stick to appendage? You can do legs. <laughs> legs, okay. You can totally do legs. I say legs all the time. Okay. I definitely, I, I like erring on the side of just use kind of a, a regular word. Some people in the lab like to call them, like, pleopods and periopods, and it's like, no one, no one... You don't we don't need, need to think that. No, much. you don't. They're, no. they're legs. They have a whole bunch of different leg types. So they have antennae and like weird little mouth legs, <laughs> mouth parts. And they have claws and they have forward walking legs and backwards walking legs and little feathery swimmerettes. If you think about a lobster, you can kind of think about that. And then they have these kind of spiky, stout anchoring appendages on the on the abdomen. So this is all in one animal. They Mm -hmm. have all these kinds of legs. Yeah. So that's actually why it's a really great system to study this question in. So all the legs I just mentioned are developmentally related. So when the animal makes legs, um, it first makes this little tiny like limb bud. And then it's like, okay, this is going to be a leg. Now, what kind of leg is it going to be? So there are these genes called Hox genes, and they tell the leg, okay, you're in the head, okay, you're going to be an antenna. You're around the mouth, you're going to be a mouth part. Um, and so it's these Hox genes that are telling the legs, you know, kind of what to be. But they all start out as like, you know, okay, you're set aside, you are leg tissue. And so 
You can actually um, mess with the Hox genes, so you can knock them down or misexpress them in different places where they're not normally found. So if you knock down this one Hox gene called abdominal B, then the feathery swimmerettes, they're kind of, they're like small and like delicate looking. Instead of developing like a swimmerette, they develop like this big, long walking leg. And so you can, we call it, transform the identity of that leg into the identity of another leg. And so the reason crustaceans are really interesting for this is because since all of these legs are kind of developmentally related, like the ancestor of all crustaceans probably looked something more like a centipede. So it had a whole bunch of legs that were all the same type. And then in the crustacean lineage that all those different leg types were modified to do a whole bunch of different things. And so looking in a crustacean essentially lets you look at a whole bunch of very different leg types, kind of different evolutionary trajectories in a single animal. Wow, that sounds pretty cool. So again, is this the same sort of in situ and expression experiments or mm -hmm. development as well? So this is kind of an in situ on like a massive scale. So what I'm doing is taking the embryo and cutting it up into different segments. So um, I'm cutting out like the claws and the swimmerettes and the walking legs and stuff. And then I'm doing this I'm sequencing all the genes that are being expressed in each of those body regions and then asking, okay, well, are there any genes in the claws that are not expressed or differently expressed than they are in the walking legs or in the antennae or something like that? And then I'm looking for genes that are differentially expressed. So then I can say, okay, well, it looks like, you know, there's something going on here with these genes. So that's essentially an in situ, except I'm doing it by sequencing all of them. But that's just, you know, that doesn't really tell you if they're functioning there. So then in order to see if those genes actually have an interesting function, I'm going to knock them out with this new technique called CRISPR-Cas9. And that's, it's a way of like knocking genes out and stuff. But it was developed by Jennifer Doudna, who's here. And it's a, an amazing, amazing technology. Is she the one who just got that award? I'm sure. I was reading. I think she's I gotten a lot about, of awards. Yeah, nice. <laughs> so um, when you say knockout, maybe we mm -hmm. should get into that a little bit more. Mm -hmm. Does that mean like replace it with something else or just mm -hmm. make it stop working or? Make it stop working. Yeah. So that just means you like, yeah, you cut the gene out. And so you must have like little target. I don't, you know, I don't deal with anything this small. So how mm -hmm. do you like, mm -hmm. how do you target a part of DNA and then mm -hmm. like remove it? The way that you do it is you make a cut in the DNA, like wherever you want. And then the way that a cell repairs that cut, often it will repair it, but not like perfectly. And so it will delete, you know, like a few base pairs in there. And then deleting those few base pairs can like often disrupt the entire gene. Because like when the gene is being read, it's read in like a three base pair frame. And so if you cut out one of the base pairs, then that entire frame has like your reading frame has completely shifted. And now you're making kind of this nonsense product. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Nobody likes nonsense. No. <laughs> <laughs> so what uh, what do you think are like the broader implications of this in, in terms of what the public might mm -hmm. really be interested in? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that's a really good question. And I feel like when people ask me, you know, well, what what's 
you know, the question that you just did. I think people think that I'm actually interested in, you know, wow, how do I make this little crustacean guy? Wow, the legs are, they're so interesting just for their sake. But that's actually, I don't think anyone's really interested in that. Like you're always using this particular crustacean or whatever animal you're using to answer much larger questions about evolution or biology. And so kind of the questions that I'm interested in are how to build animals. Like how do you build animals from genetic circuits? And then how do those genetic circuits change over time in order to create new physical forms, in order to create all of the diversity that we see around us? So if you think of like a, a centipede and a giraffe and an octopus and a flower or any plants, I'm not a plant person, you know, they're all just incredibly different looking. And the reason they look different is because they express different genes. So yeah, I think, I think it's really fascinating to figure out, you know, how, how was this animal made? And, you know, if you want to make something kind of similar, but maybe like longer legs or, you know, with horns or without horns, what are the genes that you need in order to do that? And so the, where my research fits into that is, so since all of the legs in the crustacean are kind of evolutionary, evolutionarily and developmentally related, they kind of represent, you know, a whole bunch of different physical types, but you can study them in the same genetic background. So we might be interested in, you know, how do you go from a fish fin to our hand or a horse hoof or like a puppy's hand. And, you know, we could compare all of their genes and stuff and the different expression patterns and stuff, but there are going to be a lot of genes that are just vastly different between, you know, these very distantly related animals. And it's going to be really difficult to find meaningful comparisons because just like all of the genes are going to be really different. So then it's not just about invertebrates, though, because you mentioned flowers and giraffes. So obviously there's like commonality between mm -hmm. these, even if their genes are very different. There are some like large scale patterns that you could hope to pull out or... Or is it more about comparing uh, the appendages within a single or type of organism and then having a better sense of the machinery mm -hmm. behind it? Yeah, totally, totally. So you can compare all of these different appendage types within one animal, and then you can see, okay, well, they all started out the same, but then they've become very different during development. And, you know, they have different outcomes like a claw and a swimmer and so on. And so because you're in the same genetic background, you can make meaningful comparisons between claws and swimmerettes and stuff. And so if I compare all the genes that are expressed in a swimmerette versus a claw, I know that, you know, all of the kind of basic housekeeping genes, those are all going to be the same because it's in the same animal. But whenever I see differences, it's not because it's like huge evolutionary distances between like a fish and us. I know it's because, you know, these are probably the genes that are making a claw versus making a swimmerette. So we've said making animals quite a bit. Are, do you want to make some animals or how do you feel about this idea of making I biological think, organisms? I think that would be amazing. That's actually kind of why I got into this. I don't think we're going to be able to tinker with animals in any real meaningful, awesome way. But like in the future, far, far off in the future. I think it would be so awesome if we could make like griffins and unicorns and crazy things. 
It would definitely <laughs> be crazy. Yeah. So what, how does this play into like GMOs? As we, mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. you said that word before, uh-huh. like to me personally. So, yeah. Because yeah. that is genetically modified organism. Mm-hmm. It seems close. Yeah. No, it totally is. I mean, we are in my lab. We're doing this CRISPR-Cas9 to knock out genes to look at their function. So that's totally, that's, they're genetically modified. They're GMOs. Um, we don't eat them. <laughs> But we could, I guess. I don't think they would taste very good. So, so yeah, I think people talk a lot about GMOs, and it's a pretty, like, heated discussion usually. And, yeah, I guess as a molecular biologist and reading a lot of the papers on genetically modified food and stuff, it's safe. And I also feel like if you care about the environment and if you care about feeding all of the people in the world, then you should eat GMOs. So, I mean, I just took this genome engineering, genome editing seminar course, and like the the final class, we discussed GMO food, and I volunteered to kind of lead the discussion, so I like boned up on a whole lot of papers. So I think there's this one particular review that's pretty recent, I think it was a few years ago, from Snell, S-N-E-L-L, et al., And they did this exhaustive review of whether or not there are any negative human health effects of consuming GMOs. And I mean, the paper is almost boring in how like, you know, it just goes on and on. Like this study found that there were no health effects. This study found that there were no health effects. And then this study tried it a different way. And this study did it in different animals. And they looked in like, cows and pigs and chickens and quails and mice and rats and fish they did fish too all these different feeding studies to see you know if you feed animals genetically modified food you know do they get cancer more do they have behavioral effects do they have like weird things going on with their tissue or their liver or their kidneys and stuff like that they also did multi-generational studies. Maybe it doesn't affect, you know, that animal, but maybe it's offspring or maybe it's offspring's offspring and so on. And it was just this exhaustive review of so many papers and they just did not find any health effects on these animals from consuming uh, GMO food. So I think that's like one of the major concerns that people have, like, is it safe to eat? And then another concern is, are there any environmental effects of GMOs like crop plants and stuff on the environment and that was a little like more difficult to find papers on i tried to restrict my search only to papers where they had their phd from you know a well-known university and they were not funded by a corporation or something so it was just public funding and it was really hard to like search through everything and like confirm the the funding and stuff like that so i did find a couple and I, I found a review that was pretty good. And so it compared fields that were not sprayed with any pesticides or herbicides, and then a field that was sprayed with pesticides, and then a field that was only had the BT gene, um, and that's the one that's the insecticidal one. And they wanted to look at like insect diversity, like if you if you have these BT crops that are insecticides, are they really affecting the diversity of insects um, in the like surrounding area? And they found that if the the plot that was not GMO and was not sprayed for pesticide, 
had slightly more insect diversity than the plot that was BT and not sprayed for insecticide. But not spraying for any insecticide is not realistic. If you don't spray for anything, your entire crop is going to be gone. There's like a really dramatic picture of cotton especially. And there was a GMO field right next to one that was like not GMO and not sprayed for anything. And it was like a nuclear explosion had happened on this like not sprayed one. There was like no cotton there. It's just all dead. So it's not really realistic to not spray. Okay, so if you compare the the BT crop um, that's not sprayed to one that is sprayed, the BT one actually has a lot more insect diversity in it, which I mean kind of makes sense because if you're just spraying haphazardly and like everywhere, then the insecticide is gonna kill anything that the that it gets on. But for the BT, since the insecticide is in the plant itself, insects actually have to consume it to you know in order to get the effects. And since a lot of insects aren't going to eat the crop, like monarch butterflies aren't going to eat corn. They, they want to eat milkweed. So, I mean, that kind of, that makes a lot of sense to me that GMOs are actually better for the environment than just spraying with pesticides and, and herbicides. Yeah, no, I, you certainly convinced me. You made a very oh, thank you. strong <laughs> argument. Yeah, it's, it's interesting, um, all the different things. So mm-hmm. why would the funding matter? I mean, it's kind of like... I know, I know. It's kind of like I I probably know the answer already, but mm-hmm. I'll ask you anyway. Why mm-hmm. does it matter if they're funded by corporations mm-hmm. or not? I mean, it the scientists could be doing like perfectly good and well-designed experiments, and maybe they are. But since I'm not a plant biologist and I don't even have a statistics background, I don't have the background to be able to evaluate whether the design was was good. And so I wouldn't be able to tell if there would be a better way of going about it or if they didn't do the necessary controls in order to try and get a particular outcome. And so I just didn't want to risk that. I just I wanted to not even have a doubt that like these results might be skewed a little bit. So, yeah. Yeah, no. Well, it sounds like you're doing some really interesting work, Heather. As we sort of wind up our time here on The Graduates, do you have anything you definitely want to get across to the audience? Um, I know outreach is really important to Mm -hmm. you because that's how we met. Mm -hmm. And obviously these sorts of large-scale issues about GMOs are important to you. Mm -hmm. What do you want to leave us with? Yeah, I guess, I mean, I think think the GMO thing really is very close to my heart because, I mean, with, with global warming and, you know, having and 7 billion people in the world and trying to feed that many people, we might think that like organic practices and natural farming and stuff is going to be better, but they're like demonstrably less efficient. There was a paper out from McGill a, a couple of years ago that compared, you know, organic practices versus conventional practices. And the crops that were raised organically were just, they did not produce as much. And so if you want to get as much food from an organic plot as from a conventional plot of crops, you have to use more land. And that's just not like feasible when we need to feed so many people and we're already destroying so much of the earth. So I I feel kind of a moral responsibility to consume GMO food myself and also to, you know, try and help people understand their place in like helping the environment and helping global warming and and so on well thank you it's uh, yeah it sounds like um you're doing that 
It sounds like you're doing that. And it sounds Thank like you're you. doing lots of really interesting developmental work. I think so. Yeah, definitely. It's a near my passion as well. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much, Heather, for coming on thank this episode. Yeah. Uh, you've been listening to The Graduates here on KLX Berkeley. My name's Tesla Munson. Today I've been speaking with developmental biologist Heather Bruce in molecular and cell biology here at Berkeley. She's been telling us about her work with invertebrates and developmental tinkering and appendage diversity and also her passion for uh, spreading the word about GMOs and how they actually aren't bad. In fact, arguing that we have a moral obligation to support them if we care about the earth or other people, which I hope we all do. (laughs) I I do. We do. Yes, (laughs) yes. Uh, So thanks again. And uh, we'll be back in another couple weeks with another episode of The Graduates here on Calix. But stay tuned. Until then, you're listening to 90.7 FM KALX, Berkeley.